0: Um, I'm going to cover a couple, well, first of all, hi, welcome, glad to have you guys here. I am uh, Steve, one of the pastors here, um, and I'm glad that you guys have made it out on such a beautiful day. Um, you should have received a bulletin when you came in, all our announcements and things are on there, I just want to highlight a couple of them. Uh, in two Sundays, our church is having beach day, so after the service, we're heading out to the beach, there'll be more information about where location is and everything, we'll just hang out as a church family there. Um, we, are, we have branch groups, it's our form of community here, and they're wrapping up at the end of, um, at the end of July, and so it's kind of like a, a nice chance for us all to gather together. There's a conference coming up in September, a marriage conference coming up, and so there's some information in here about that. And then ultimately, if you are with us, and so you're here and you're a part of branches and you call this your home, there are so many um, things you can do to get involved as far as service goes. And so if it's something where you've been coming for a while, you're like, yeah, this is, this is going to be home for us, then you can talk to, to me, you could talk to some people, you could um, fill out this uh, Connect card, and you can just let us know you're interested in serving, and we would, we would love to get you connected to that. Um, all right, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can come together, and we can open up your word, and we can learn together. I thank you that through worship we can encourage one another as we hear our brothers and sisters in Christ singing out praises to you. I pray that you would use this time, um, use this time to edify those in here, that you would use this time to um, expose sin, that you would use this time um, to glorify yourself. I pray that as I communicate these truths they would only be the things that you want me to communicate that these would be your words, not mine, that I wouldn't stray from um, the things that you have, you have designed for today. I pray that you would open ears. I pray that you would break hearts. And I pray that you would use this time mightily for your glory. In your name we pray, amen. Um, I am not the, full, the lead pastor. I don't have the majority of the pulpit time. Pastor Israel, if you haven't been around, Pastor Israel is our, our lead guy, so he has most of the time in the pulpit. But... He is super generous to other guys, and he wants the church to hear other voices, so he gives us opportunities to preach along the way. And so when I've been having the opportunity to preach, I've been walking us through the book of 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, that's where you uh, can get to. We will eventually get there today. If you don't have one, we have them in the seats, and you're welcome to have one of those, and you can actually keep it if it's something that you don't have and you need a Bible. We would love for you to have one of those Bibles. But we'll be in First Peter, and if you're not sure where that is, keep going until you get to Revelation and you've gone too far and back up a little. Um, I want to just do a quick review of where we've been in First Peter because I don't think it's fair to just jump into a text without any context of what's been going on. I think it's important that you understand where we were, and since some of you haven't been with us the whole time, I think it's important that you see um, where we are and where we're going. 1 um, Peter is a letter to believers uh, they were spread out all over what is now Turkey. Uh, persecution ha- is, is occurring, uh, not state-sponsored persecution at this time but more just because of the faith that they have. Because they are Christians, because they are believers, they are being persecuted for that. And in that sense, there's a lot of similarities to where we are now just for, if you look at, you look at our culture, Christianity is not deemed necessarily with the high standards that it was. We're seen as all kinds of things, um, but none of, not most of them not true. Um, so he's dealing with the idea that Christians are now out among in the world, and they're dealing with persecution, and he's walking them through what it means to be a Christian in light of that, and so as we start, I'm going to actually just kind of walk us quickly, like real quick. I'm going to read some passages, but if you're at the beginning of 1 of Peter, you can follow along, or you can just wait in three, and we'll catch up to you. Um, he reminds us of a few things. First thing he reminds us of is that what god has done the readers of what god has done for them remember they're in the midst of persecution they're in the midst of dealing with people who do not find them as amusing as christians as they would like to be and so he reminds them of what god has done for them in 1 3 it says he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead he has died for your sins it's a reminder of that he also calls them to be holy he reminds them of that in 1 and 16, he says, as, you, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. He reminds them that he is a holy God and that because of Jesus' work on the cross, they are righteous and they can be holy as well. And then he reminds them of who they are. This is their identity and this is kind of the, the thrust of where, they get to, where we get to go Next. Um, but you are a chosen race, two uh, chapter two verses nine and ten. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He gives them a, a, a reminder of who their identity is. Who you are in Christ. You are royal. You are holy. You are God's people. And because of that you should proclaim that out you proclaim that the praises of the one who called you out of that and so because of who we are that indicative of who we are he calls them to mission he calls them to proclaim that and so he starts with we the last time we spoke we i got a chance to preach we talked about how we are to submit to our authority how we are submit to the government how we submit to Um, our our masters as slaves or as employees in in a work in the workforce and so we use this idea of submission and that's kind of where we we pick up so i'm going to be in uh, i'm going to read 2 21 through 25 where we left off at the last time for you were called to this because christ also suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps he did not commit sin No deceit was found in his mouth, and when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on the body on the tree, so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is the example we have as we move forward. He laid down his life. He placed himself under the authority of his father. He submitted to his father for our righteousness, and that's what we're going to pick up today. And so I'm going to read where we're going to be. We're going to be in just seven verses in chapter 3. Um, so I'm going to read those. If you would please stand with me and um, as I read the scripture. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word. By the way their wives live when they observe your pure and reverent lives don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes but rather what is inside the heart the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in god's sight for in the past the holy women who put their hope in god also adorned themselves in this way submitting to their own husbands just as sarah obeyed abraham calling him lord You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Verse seven, husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner, showing them honor as co-heirs, of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Hear the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. Okay, you all heard the word that I said. I could see the discomfort in some of your faces. He said submission. Please do not preach on submission or money. That is not what I want today. You feel uneasy. That word is a loaded word. It has a lot of uh, baggage with it, you could say. And I hate to admit, but the church has a lot to do with why that word has that loaded uh, meaning behind it. Um, And what I think we need to do before we can even get into the text is have an understanding of the word submission. To move forward without that is not fair to the text, I don't think. I think we need to be on the same page because, again, a lot of you are coming in here, with your, your opinion of what you think submission is, what you've seen submission to be. And I want to make sure that we're all clear on the same point of what does the Bible say submission is? And then we can go with that. And at that point, if you're in branch group and you still want to argue about it, branch leaders, I'm sorry, but have fun with that, okay? Um, but I do want us to have, I want us to have a, um, a working understanding of the word submission before we can get into the text. And so we're going to take a little bunny trail down there. Don't worry, I'll get us back. Um, but this is not an exhaustive study. So for my Bible geeks out there who are already starting to check boxes, no, I'm probably not going to cover that passage. No, I'm not going to cover that passage. I can't get into all of it, but I do want to just do a quick overview so that we have a a working use of this word. So let's define the term submission as we use it here. Um, It's going to be used as a a, um, function. It's like a statement of function and role. Um, the the word is translated it's it's hupotasso. There are a couple defi- there are a couple words that they use for submission, but the one that's used here is hupotasso. And for my Greek people, I'm sorry. It, it always signals to uh, a willing placement of obedience under God placed authority. So that's the definition we're going to use: a willing, um, a willing pla- self placed obedience to God placed authority. Um, and if you look at this slide that I have, there are a bunch of verses. I'm not going to read all these verses, but I want to give you some pictures of how this is done, and I want you to understand in the word, in the, um, what we look about when we talk about God-placed authority. So in Luke 2, 51, Jesus submitted to his earthly parents. His parents were in that God-placed authority. Luke 10, 17, demons were subject to the disciples. The disciples were in that God-placed authority. Romans 13, one through one and five, citizens are submitting to the government. The government is placed in that God-placed um, authority. Hebrews 13, 17, the church members submit to the elders. The elders are in that role of authority. James 4, 7, we are all to submit to God. God is in the ultimate role of authority. First Corinthians 15, 27 and Ephesians 1, the universe is in subject to Christ. Christ is in that place of authority. And it's such an important thing that in Romans 13, 2, it says that opposing God's authority brings judgment. So going against his authority brings judgment on you because all authority comes from him. God has placed all authority. He's given roles to those in authority and those in submission. Those are roles that we're going to see that fit under his authority. And I think the one main reason that a lot of us struggle with authority, with the idea of submission, The reason that we hate to submit to people is because we hate to submit to God. And if you take a second and check yourself on that, it's probably true. If you think about the reasons you do not want to submit to authority in some realm, at work, um, the government, in relationship, whatever it is, why you don't want to do it, you tend to not want someone to sit in your throne. You do not want anyone, even God at times, to sit in the throne that you have placed for yourself as the king of your world, as the queen of your world. You Do not want anyone sitting in that throne. And so we push back against that. We struggle with this idea of submission because that's saying someone else is in authority over me. And we, I don't want that. And maybe that's just me. But if I look at this and I see that um, submission to people is submission to God, that means rebellion against people is rebellion against God. And so that's something that I think we need to, to work through a little bit is if we're pushing back against submission, what, what's a reason for pushing back against submission? What, is, is it merely the definition, or is it that we struggle with having anyone in authority over us, even God? But our focus this week is going to be on the husband and wife, so let's spend a little bit of time looking on what submission looks like in a marriage. And for those of you who are not married, this is still for you. Um, if you're thinking about getting married or you don't want to get married, this is, if, if you're thinking about getting married, this concept here, is something that you should be thinking about as you look for that spouse. What kind of a leader, what kind of a, a person of respect, what, what kind of person am I, am I engaged to, am I dating, am I in looking for? And if marriage is not something that God has planned for you, we need to remember also that this picture of marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. So this applies to everyone who's here today. So don't just tune out, I know it's easy to do that, but try and pay attention on this piece because I think it's important. Um, where did this idea of this almost uh, let's call it the battle of the sexes where this kind of confrontation between man and woman come from we have to go all the way back to Genesis in Genesis 3 and we have our first parents Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden everything's going smooth but they were just told don't eat of the fruit of this tree and yet they're now being tempted by Satan to do this and they sin, and they fall, and they disobey, and they they accept the sin, and they take it on. And so they are thrown from the garden, and they're cursed. And when we look at the curse that was given to the woman in Genesis 3.16, it says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. In some of the texts it'll say your desire shall be for your husband but I think that the translation shall be contrary to your husband makes a better picture of what we're talking about here. Um, You as the woman and the wife see that role of authority and now you have a desire for it. Or your husband's going to abuse the position he has and he's going to rule over you. This is where the beginning of it is. Um, There's a pastor that I love, um, Ray Ortland, and he said this about this verse. Either she will suffer conflict with her husband or she will suffer domination by him. This is a result of the curse. But, spoiler, the gospel comes. And we don't have to worry about the curse in light of that because we see that those sins that were there were paid for on the cross. So the gospel is where we are going to see the restoration of that original unity that we had. So in a, in a Christian relationship, we're going to see um, how the gospel can apply um, we see Jesus he takes on both roles for us to to experience he, he takes on the um, let's call it the the servant leader position and let's call the other one the helper subordinate position we see him in both roles um, in the um, he, he raises the value of I guess the the way it's the woman is seen underlines the value of the role of the woman by taking on these roles and he also shows us the servant leader look at uh, Philippians 2 5 through 11 should be up there and we'll see how Jesus is our example. If he, uh, Philippians 2 5 and 11 says adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider e- equality with God as something to be exploited or grasped or held on to. Instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity and when he had come as a man he humbled himself even beyond be, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord as to the glory of the Father, to the glory of the Father. It says in there that he emptied himself, he took on a role lower than God. He humbled himself by being obedient, even to the point of death. He shed his divine privileges without becoming any less divine. He voluntarily submitted to the Father without duty or coercion. He did it lovingly for our righteousness as a gift to his Father. Um, 1 Corinthians 11.3, we we look at the roles that are here. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. That's the role of authority and the role of a, a helper subordinate. And the man is the head of every woman. Now, a head of the woman, not every woman, his wife. And that God is the head of Christ. Don't worry, we'll get to that part too. For all of you who are like, you don't have to talk about this. Um, we see this pattern here. We see the servant leader position. We see how he st- where it stands, and we see the authority over him. So we see that Jesus has been in both roles. We see that he exists in both roles. And this pattern of the father and the son are, are the same pattern that we are looking for in a husband and a wife. The son submits to the father's headship with voluntary and joyful eagerness, not out of inferiority, not out of coercion, not out of duty. The father's headship is acknowledged, and in in reciprocation, he responds accordingly. If you notice, there's no inequality of ability or dignity. As men and women, there is no difference between our... our, Our dignity or what we can do our innate value is not there's no differences between that we are differently gendered we look different we behave different at times it does not change our value so what I want to do is say that's what our definition is our definition that we're going to work with biblically is that we are submission is willingly submitting yourself or placing yourself under the authority of someone in God placed authority that God has placed the authority there and so we are willingly placing ourselves under that, not under coercion, not because we're of less value. So that's a working place to be. So let's look at what it is not real quick. Sorry, we've got to move through this so I can get to the text. It's not a statement of value. When we say the, husband, the wife should submit to the husband, it's not saying that the wife has less value because of it. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man or mankind or humans in our image according to our likeness, and they will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created mankind in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He created us with equal dignity, with equal spiritual value. The woman is not less than the man, she has a different role. She has a different appearance. I mean, if you think of positions of authority anywhere else, if you were to think of, um, in a workplace, the boss and the worker, they have a different role, but their value isn't different. Their dignity isn't different. It's not changed. In in a home, the wife and the husband have been given roles. There's no difference in their dignity. There's no difference in their value. It's just the role that they are placed in by God. The husband is not, by his God-given authority, automatically more gifted, more valuable, more intelligent than his wife. We are created as image bearers, equal as image bearers of God. So we carry equal spiritual worth as we partner together. Now, in that role, the husband is to lead the wife. He's to lead the family. That is, his, that is part of the responsibility of him, is to do that. In God-glorifying directions. That, that comes out of um, an understanding in the, in the household. That comes out of an understanding of who they are. So John Piper, the pastor John Piper says that when he examines this in a, in a family, he's looking for the husband to do a lot more of the initiation. That the word let's comes out a lot more from the husband. Let's do this. Let's try this. Let's think about this. Let's plan to go there. And that begins a discussion within a home. But ultimately, the responsibility lies on the husband's shoulders. Now, If my wife and I were to go, we had a discussion, we're going on vacation, where are we going to go? Let's go to Seattle. Well, I want to go to New Mexico. Well, I want to go to Seattle. And we both have a discussion. I do not lovingly come down and say, well, we're doing what I want to do. We have a conversation. We look at the decision that we made. And I listen to her, and she listens to me. And ultimately, the decision comes down if we don't agree that I make the decision. But when I say, let's go to New Mexico, and that's the decision I made, and we go along the way, I'm sorry. Yes, we go to let's go to New Mexico. It's hot and miserable there. We go to, along the way and things don't go right. Let's say well, I'm sorry. I messed that whole excuse me. Cut that from the tape. Let's say we go with what she wants to do. And we go to Seattle. And as we're driving up to Seattle, the car breaks down and someone robs our luggage and we get sick on the way and then some other horrid thing happens and one other thing happens. I don't get to say I told you. I knew this would happen when we decided this. The responsibility lays on me. I made that decision, so the weight of it and the failure of it lies on me. The weight is there for the man. Even if I agree that that's her point of view, that we should follow that direction. It's not ultimate authority. Okay, so it's not a statement of value. It's not a brainless act. Submitting is not turning off your brain. Submitting is not turning off the natural God-given gifts and abilities that you were given. You use your, your, your gifts and abilities as you work with your husband, as you work with your family this if you notice it's saying wives submit to your husbands not husbands demand obedience from your wife it's not something that is forced it's something she willfully gives she willfully places herself there and she chooses to honor God by submitting to this man that's something we're gonna spend a lot of time on she is honoring God by submitting to this man so it's not a statement of value not a brainless act the husband is not the ultimate authority. His value, his, his value, his authority is derivative. He did not get that authority because he was born a man. It was given to him because God gave him that authority. God placed that there. That doesn't mean he's not wrong. That doesn't mean he doesn't make mistakes. Because I do. It, we're flawed sinners. We will be wrong. The ultimate authority is God. God. The ultimate authority is God, and he leads under that authority. What this does not do, it does not allow a man to lead his wife in sin. It doesn't allow him to use her in sin, to encourage her to sin, to sin in front of her, to sin to her, to abuse her. That is not in here at all. It it distorts the view of submission completely when a man uses his authority to harm his wife, to sin against his wife, to encourage his wife to sin with him. That authority is derivative, which means if he is going to lead his wife in sin, if he is going to abuse his wife, if he's going to do anything outside of the context of the authority given to him, he abdicates that authority. And his authority is invalid. Wives, if you're in a situation like that, where your husband is sinning, confront him. If it's an abusive relationship, call the police, call the elders of the church. Do not allow, that is not submission. That is straight up abuse and sin. It is, that is not what the, the picture of Christ in the church looks like at all. So he is not the ultimate authority. It's not a brainless act. It's not a statement of value. And it's not to all men. The Bible is very clear about that it's only towards her husband. It is not, if you're a woman in here that is not married to some other man, he cannot demand you to do something. He cannot, you know, have this authority over you. It is not placed there. Now, we all as Christians are to submit to authority. So if you're a woman in the church and you would submit to the eldership of the church just like a man would. If you were to go out and be pulled over by a police officer, the Bible says we should submit to that. A woman and a man should pull over and submit to the authorities that are there. That's the way it works. But when we're talking about marriage, it's not to all men. The wife submits to her husband. Again, I think the church does a, horrible job at times um, displaying this that for some reason because I'm a man I have authority over all women. Enough said. Um, God's ideal plan for husbands is to demonstrate the love of Christ which should make submission easier for the wife and for wives to respect and submit their husbands which makes loving them and caring for them and protecting them easier. That circle of relationship that picture that we have. I mean, think about our, the, the relationship of us with Christ. He sacrificed and loved us, and in response, we submit to him. It, it, it flows out of that. So that's my quick version of submission. I want us to land on a, on a common definition of it, where it is authority placed on as a role in the husband and that the wife willingly submits to his authority that was given by God. That's what I want to see as our definition. So we're going to move on with that being our definition and get to these seven verses that we're going to cover. Um, As I mentioned before, what we're talking about here is a piece of mission. It's an evangelistic type of a piece because what I have is a husband that is not saved and a wife that is not saved. And we're talking about submission in light of those things. So let's jump in um notice that there are six verses that we read about women and one verse about a man which seems a little unequal but remember we we have to look at the context we have to look at what was going on at that time the the women in that time did not have um as much i I say a word freedom when they lived in their father's house there was something called father's law he had authority over life and death over them and when they would move into their husband with their husband he would have a similar authority over her, over the wife, of life and death. Put them away, put them off if they did not do what pleased the man. So when a woman changed religions, was called by Christ into the family of God, that could cause some kind of a disruption in a marriage. And when you have a man who doesn't believe, who has that kind of social authority, cultural authority, It could be frightening. So we see Peter showing the dignity of women by spending six verses, considering them equals and showing them. Look, here's some guidelines. Here's some wisdom in interacting with an unsaved spouse. And I think that picturing it that way, it's like, oh, well then I understand why he spent six verses on that. And when we see what he does to men in the last verse, you could see why that's a powerful single verse for guys. So we'll get into this. The first two verses are about being a submissive and faithful wife. So let's look at one and two. In the same way, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live when they observe your pure and reverent lives. When he says in the same way, he's going back all the way to chapter 2 verses 13 and 18 when we talked about um, submission to authority in government and submission to authority with slaves and masters. He's using that same idea of In that same way that you submit to them, submit to your husbands. Notice right there, he's talking about all husbands. So wives, this is, if your husband is saved, this passage still has stuff for you to learn in here. If not, then this is especially, because the next section says, even if some disobey the word. He's saying, this is how you you submit and you revere your husband, even if he's not saved. Even if he's not saved. She still submits to him, even if he's not a believer. Um, It continues on, even, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so they may be won over without a word by the way their wives live. When you hear that without a word, I'm sure that it could be distorted as women need to just shut up and be quiet and not talk at all. But that's not what it's saying. Remember, these are guards being put in place for these women who are married to men who could harm them, could abuse them, could even have them put to death, over a change in something that would make him look bad that would make him lose respect in the culture so they're like hey be wise about how you interact with your husband you're going to live a life that shows so he um she's called to respond to the gospel and is now living with an unbelieving husband and he says to be careful that not every single conversation that you have is turned into a conversation about jesus i mean you could see how that could be off-putting to a non-believer. Hey, honey, can you turn on the light? You know, Jesus is the light of the world. Every single conversation is turned into that. It starts to make me frustrated as an unbeliever. I'm pushing away. Uh, my kids call it the Jesus juke. It's like every time, really, you're going to bring Jesus into this thing? And it pushes them away. Instead, he says, be an example. Let her see. Let him see you. Now, it's not saying that he should she shouldn't speak at all in fact if you go so far as to look at verse 15 of chapter three it says be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you so we're not saying the woman is not to speak he's saying her wife, she should use wisdom in how she speaks she should look for those opportunities but she should really tell a lot through it i'm not saying lifestyle evangelism because we all know lifestyle evangelism only can get you so far But you still need to speak the gospel. You still need to preach it. You still need to say it. But look for those windows and those doors. Don't just go there and start beating against the wall. You know, you know, you know, you know. It's going to push people back. So he's saying, look, he's an unbeliever. You could be treated a certain way. Let me protect you. Not every word out of your mouth needs to be this way. Live a life that's an example. Live something that would cause him to ask questions, would cause him to want to know something. When the opportunity is right, say something. If you're married to a believer, this is the, this still applies. Guys will tell you, I need my wife to live a pure and reverent life. I need to see her praying. I need to see her in the Word. I need to be convicted by the fact that maybe I am not doing some of these things, that I'm not loving as well, that I'm not caring as well. I need to see her living a gospel life. We are in community. We are a mini community group. I see her every day, and I want to interact with her in that way. And I see her as an example. I want to interact like that. So guys, pay attention to your wives. Women, when you're, if your husband is saved, he still needs to see you live this life. He still needs to see you live this life of a gospel, this pure and reverent life. All right, um, moving on to verse 3 through 6. He starts to deal with modesty a little bit. Um, don't let your beauty consist of outward things like elaborate hairstyles and wearing gold jewelry or fine clothes, but rather what is inside the heart the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For in the past, holy women who put their hope in God also adorned themselves in this way, submitting to their own husbands just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. You have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation. Verses 3 and 4, we're talking about the fact that clothing and Adornment should not be the preoccupation. There's nothing innately wrong with wearing nice clothes, with wearing jewelry, with doing your hair a certain way. He's saying the, the preoccupation should be with your heart. Uh, he says he calls it imperishable. Um, if you, I, w- I graduated from high school in 88. If you were to take a look at my yearbook and you were to start flipping through it, um, for those, some of the, the teenagers might think that there's some cool retro styles in there, but for the rest of us, we would be a, just like appalled that we were, what we were thinking when we wore what we wore, when our hair looked like what it did. Fads come and go and change. It's not always the same. Um, Our body, Crystal, sorry, what is it that keeps my face up? Is it collagen that keeps it from sagging? Collagen, okay. So that goes away with age at times, right? Would I be correct in saying that? Thank you. So that's going to change. You're not going to have the same look. Okay, after time things will start to droop. They will not be the same that they are right now for some of you who still have things in the places where they're supposed to be. It's going to change. You will not look the same. But what will is that imperishable part of you, that part on the inside that he's talking about. He's saying don't focus on the outside. Don't focus on what you look like and worry about that when you're talking about saving a husband, when you're talking about witnessing to your husband who doesn't believe. Focus on what's inside, that imperishable quality. And he uses the idea of a gentle and quiet spirit. And this one, it's funny because he uses this, but you got to think it through. Gentle is the opposite of harsh. So this is a quality that is opposite of harsh. Um, That same word is used as meek when describing Jesus. It's not a harsh person. Um, And then quiet is peaceful, like the opposite of the loudness of war. So when we say a gentle, quiet person, Spirit, he didn't say person, he said spirit. This is a woman who has a, um, a calming behavior, a calming presence, especially when things are kind of starting to spin out. She's not hypercritical. She's not always um, disagreeable. She's not trying to, you know, to see disunity. She is trying to, she just exudes peace. She, you've been around these people. You want to spend time around them. They, they offer you this, this sense of peace. And you've got a woman who is in a home, with a man who might not, who doesn't believe. And that example of this loving, peace-filled woman, like that definitely will um, make the man think something different about what she believes. Now, what it isn't saying, it's not saying that you can't be what your God-given gifts are. You cannot be um, extroverted. You cannot be talkative. You cannot be um, loud. You cannot be funny. Those are all God-given gifts. We're talking about a spirit of that. There are women who are very loud and have amazing extroverted personalities who still have a gentle spirit, who have a quiet spirit. That's what they're calling the, the wives to, to have that. As she approaches him with this spirit, he sees the difference. And then in five and six, he uses Old Testament um, women in their history that would have understood as an example. He used Sarah as an example of a woman from the past who submitted her husband. He talks, if you look at, in the, uh, the story of Um, abraham and sarah you see that she's described as beautiful um but you also see how she submits to her husband who as to god and she even refers to him as lord when he's not around that's this example of this woman who love who's lovingly submitting to god by submitting to her husband but in 6b the second part of that one you have become her children when you do what is good and do not fear any intimidation so submission to an unsaved husband could cause some fear, as we described before. There could be some concern about what's going on. And what he's saying here is, you have nothing to worry about when, your author, when the authority is in me. I, I have your best interest in, in heart. You can submit to this man knowing that you're ultimately submitting to me. You do, if you're doing what is good and what I've called you to do, you do not have to fear intimidation. You do not have to fear being frightened about that if you're married to a man let's first start with that if you're married to any guy you're gonna realize that it's sometimes hard to submit to him sometimes he's a jerk sometimes he may not love you the right way he may not lead you perfectly and it may be difficult but understand that your submission is ultimately submission to God you're ultimately willingly placing yourself under the authority of this flawed, sinful human who has been given the role of authority because you're under the authority of God. Um, husbands, you get one verse, but it's a big one, I think. In, in verse 7, um, he's going to address the man. And like we said, if you look at the culture piece, if we look at the culture piece for the man, a Christian man in good standing and in that time, to have an unsaved wife would have been a sign that you're not leading your home well. Uh, It it could be a sign of embarrassment to you and your family. How come you can't get it together and get your wife saved? And so culturally, for you even, there's a little bit of pressure there. But Peter spends some time talking to him about the fact that they are to still follow God and they're not to bow to any other any other social cultural standards um, and that we are to treat his even his unconverted wife with deference he starts the section this way He sa- the same way he says "Husbands, in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker partner showing them honor as co-heirs with the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered now Steve A minute ago, you said that that in the same way was talking about submission, but we're talking about husbands. This can't be what this means. Well, it's referring to to chapter two, verses 13 and 18. He is talking about submission, but he's not talking about submission to the wife in the same way that the wife submits to the husband. Um, We're thinking about submitting to our role as a servant leader. We're thinking about this idea of servant leadership like Jesus led. if you look at what you see in comparison to what was going on culturally in the bible versus what god was calling people to it was an upside down kingdom the last shall be first like it was it was kind of an upside down situation and so we usually think of leaders as privileged and they get all of the best things and they do all this stuff and he's calling them to serve those he leads and so in this case you want to serve your wife you want to do that um he's redeeming this idea of headship away from this toxic definition of headship, which would be to lord their leadership over them. You were to lovingly serve your wife. You're on mission to the world, and you're on mission to your wife. And in this specific section, he's talking about that. So there's three things in this that I wanna see. The first one is the word understanding. Um, And I think that this talks about considering your wife and appreciating your wife. It's translated from two words that mean according to knowledge which means you need to know your wife. You should be, uh, this, your wife should be your doctoral dissertation. Like you need to know all about her. The problem is is the data keeps changing as you get to know your wife because as she cha- gets older, she changes and you're learning more. You need to be a, such a student of your wife that you know the things that bring her joy. You know the things that make her sad. You know the things that she's afraid of and that you need to be there for. You know all of those things about her. You know her so well. You've studied her. Ephesians five twenty eight says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own body, he who loves his wife loves himself. We love ourselves, we love our bodies. But you know it, as I get older, I'm starting to realize I know myself even better. I know the foods I can't eat anymore. I know the things I can't do physically without an, an immense amount of pain the next couple days. Like, I know those things. I need to know my wife like I know that. I need to know her so well. And so this application goes for uh, if you're married to a Christian woman as well. Guys, just because you got the girl doesn't mean you need to shut it down. Okay. This is a long game. Romance is the short game, and there's nothing wrong with romance, but we're talking the long game. You're there with her for eternity. Well, not for eternity. Don't get me wrong, theologically. But you're there till you die. Okay? You're with her. This is a long-term thing. So you need to know her. You need to serve her. You need to love her. Continue to learn her. Continue to nourish her by knowing who she is. And then he goes on to say, as with the weaker partner. And the only word I could come up with this is chivalrous um, because he's He's not talking about that the wife has less value, again. But let's talk biologically and physiologically. Men are designed differently than women. Men are generally stronger designed than women are. Not saying that there are several women who probably could kick my butt. But they they are designed that way. Emotionally, physically, they are designed differently than us. And amen for that. But we are to be aware of that. So it doesn't make her less value. It's saying, be aware that she is the weaker vessel and that you should care for her that way. It could be as simple as opening a door for her. It could be so much as protecting her and placing yourself in danger's way. If you're going somewhere where you feel it may not be safe, are you willing to get involved and protect her? If you're living someplace where she does not feel safe, guys, man up. Figure out how you can get her out of that spot. If she's driving a car that breaks down all the time and she is left driving at a late time at night, she should not be driving that car. Get her a different car, give her your car, whatever you need to do to provide for her. It's sacrifice. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We need to be sacrificial leaders. And then the final point on this one would be friendship or companionship if you want to keep the C's going. It says, showing honor as co-heirs of the grace of life. In the eyes of God, all Christians, all believers are equal. And, and we're talking about this idea of eternal life. But when we look at this passage, he's talking about a saved man and an unsaved wife. So what he's talking about more along the lines of a, the common grace of marriage, this common grace of being together, this common grace of life, is provided to all by God. And... At that time when Peter wrote this, marriage was not about friendship. Marriage was about duty. The wife was seen as mostly a servant who would care for the home, care for the children, and the husband was seen as the person who would go and provide. But a relationship of intimacy wasn't necessarily the commonplace. It wasn't, it was, it was rare. And so what we're looking at is something that would have been quite a cultural shift to say you need to care for your wife and love her and build relationship with her. You need to have a friendship with her. We are, like I said, we're in it for the long game. My wife and I are going to want to pull in the same direction. I want to know her. I want to be her friend. She should be the person you want to spend the most time with. She knows everything about me. Good and bad, mostly bad, and she still loves me. It draws me to her. It makes me want to be her friend. I want to spend time with her. It blows my mind when I hear guys say, man, can't wait for the weekend. I got this, uh, a guy's weekend. I'm like, you just got to the end of the week not being with your wife and you don't want to be with your wife again? She should be the person you want to spend the most time with. She should be the person you're building that relationship with. So he ends it with a warning, or you could look at it as a promise. It said, so that your prayers will not be hindered. He's saying the servant leader should behave in this way, and we are reminded of the importance of it. And this warning of, you heard it right, your prayers will not be hindered. This isn't the first time you've heard it. Isaiah 59, 2 says, but your iniquities have made separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he does not hear. In Psalm sixty-six, eighteen, 18, it says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. We're reminded that the sin in our life can hamper our relationship with God. If you are a husband who is not fulfilling his covenantal duties to his wife, God may not answer your prayers. God may not hear you. And I know it sounds way over the top on this, but understand the severity of what he's saying. He's talking about the model of Christ and the church is being played out in the marriage of the man and the woman. And he's saying that is being shown as you minister to your wife, and if you're not doing that correctly, it's a severe punishment, but we're going to cut off your communication through prayer. That's the importance of it. I mean, that weighs heavily on the man. So even though he doesn't get six verses, he gets this warning about how he should love and care for his wife. As we wrap this up, I want to remind you that this idea that I was talking about before, that God's ideal plan is for husbands to demonstrate the love of Christ, which is going to make submission easier, and for wives to respect and submit, which makes loving easier. And so when we ask the question, well, so then how do I have a positive witness to my unsaved spouse? It's pretty clear here. You live an exemplary Christian life as A submissive faithful wife as a servant leading husband and that only comes from Jesus's example and the Holy Spirit's strength and guidance this pleases God and gives testimony for him but what I don't understand is how you can do this without him like the Bible is very clear about how you should not be unequally yoked you should marry a believer and some of you have married got married and then one of you became saved and I see that picture but to intentionally marry someone who's not a believer to neither of you be believers and be married, that is grace because I cannot imagine what it would be like to be married and not have God, not have Jesus and the understanding of the grace that he provided for me. And the multitudes of sins that I, that I am guilty of against my wife and not have that forgiveness, I don't understand how someone can do that outside other than the grace of god so in a healthy marriage christian in a healthy christian marriage the husband and wife should lovingly and sacrificially put each other first before themselves as fellow members of christ let me pray heavenly father i thank you for this this picture that you have drawn for us this um design that you have placed that you have created order out of chaos that you have placed um us in roles based on your design that we may not always understand but that we can trust that you have a design in place for a reason that you've given us an example in Christ of how to live that out that you've given us the ability to do that because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross I thank you for marriage and the idea of it I thank you for the example that it sets not only of Christ in the church but to the world in general of what it looks like I pray that as we walk away from this, if we're married, that we would acknowledge um, our roles and the reasons for our roles and that we would, with a servant's heart, lovingly sacrifice for one another. If we are not married, that we would see this example of Christ in the church and we would be amazed by that. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the work on the cross that allows the forgiveness of sins in your name we pray amen